Lord your God, in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So when we come together on April 3rd, what we're saying is, let's bring an offering. Let's have all our kids bring offerings. And let's, if somebody doesn't have one, share yours with them. But the idea is to come and to bless the Lord and to bless his house. And we, we're going to use this offering time to just eliminate the debts of the church. I've never believed in indebting our kids. In other words, we take out the loan, build the buildings, have the cush seats, and they're still making the payments by the time it's all worn out. It sounds like the government. Amen. So we're not practicing that. We want to live debt-free in, in where we worship and how we uh, house our worship and experience together. So uh, we're going to use that on April the 3rd to get together, have communion, have an agape feast, a love feast, and big potluck. It's, uh, we haven't got it all worked out, but it's going to be fun. And uh, there's going to be chocolate, I think. Probably. I hear. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and so... Uh, Anyway, I just say that to enlighten the moment and anticipation. So let's, let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for being able to give according to how you've blessed us. Lord, we thank you that as we bring a tithe and offering to you, you use it to advance your kingdom and to support the, the business of the church as well. So bless now in Jesus' name and prepare our hearts towards April 3rd as we gather on that day as well. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, if there's nothing else, is there anything else? Uh, Pastor Rob's preaching this morning, and so let's welcome Pastor Rob. Yeah. We're going to adjust. Hallelujah, I'll start talking so we can make sure it's adjusted and not going to feed back. Feedback happens when the microphone gets too close to the line of the speakers. That's what feedback is. Amen. Well, welcome to those who thought that service started one minute ago. (laughs) And you pulled into the parking lot and went, time change. You know, it's, I always think it's amazing that we forget this one, but we never forget the other one. Right? We're always late to something, but when the time changes in our favor, we don't show up an hour early. <laughs> Something's wrong with that picture. Amen. Hallelujah. We are in a study of the book of Hebrews. And, you know, this week I I spent uh, a lot of time um, beginning to attack the book of Hebrews. And it really is a beginning uh, in just one of my commentaries that I have. There is um, it was 80 pages uh, of small print, kind of like an old Bible print devoted to the first two chapters of Hebrews. And that's just one commentary. I read a few Listen to, you know, uh, hours of actually one of my uh, seminary classes is is a survey of the book of Hebrews. A a survey is different than a line by line exposition. And the survey of Hebrews in my class is is um, 18 hours of lectures uh, over the whole over the whole book. And that's just a brief flyby. It's a survey, right? Remember the difference between a survey. So there is so much in the book of Hebrews. And we could we do a lot of things and because I'm not much of an expositional preacher taking, you know, one one verse and just keep going um, this this morning. We're going to talk about the whole chapter, chapter two through verse three uh, for through chapter three, verse six. So we're going to try to attack an entire chapter plus six more verses and talk about just a few things, an overview of some of the things in that area, um, leaning on one main part. But let's pray as we do that, because I don't want to make this an hour and 45 minute 
time. I really want to get done um, and, and get to just a couple of the points made in this chapter. Father, we thank you for your word. It is living. It is active. God, we pray that it would be living in our hearts and our lives. God, it would be activated within us. God, I pray that you would help it to judge our thoughts and our attitudes, God. Lord, we know that it will judge the intents of man's heart. Lord, I pray that we begin to get a a better grasp on the word of God, on, on the deepness, on the richness of it. Lord, we thank you, God, for the complete infallibility of the word of God. Lord, we pray that it, uh, this morning, though it would be a little different than uh, a normal approach for me in the scriptures, God, that we would be enlightened, but not just in our mind, Father. Help us to grasp some other things. Lord, like only you can, only you can, God, through this time in the word, I pray that you would speak individually to each person to issues and, and areas uh, where they're at. But God, let us not miss the overall depth and the importance of the word of God. Father, bless this time in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Um, you know, I was really trying to think, why is it important to, you know, to exegete or exposit a book of the Bible or the book of Hebrews? Um, really, why is it important to go through and pull out anything? There's because there's so much depth in the word of God. And it's so important that we know why we believe what we believe. And later this year, that's that's something I actually want to talk about is do you really believe what you believe is really true? And we need to know why we believe what we believe. We're going to come into a time and already are when when just saying, I just believe because I I love God is not going to be enough because the, the Bible says in the end times, people will lay up for them teachers who will preach and teach them what they want to hear. It says in the end times, if it were possible, even the elect would be led astray. It is so important, church, that we become a a, a church, a people who are founded on the absolute infallibility of the word and the word of God in its totality. From beginning to end, the word is true. From beginning to end, it has richness. It has theology. It has doctrine. We need to study God. Theology is the study of God. We need to understand him. And he has left us the word of God to do that. And that is so important. In the very beginning of chapter 2, it it, it presents to us a warning. And and throughout the book of Hebrews, there are uh, some warnings, some parenthetical warnings and things. And this is just one of them in chapter 2. Now, in chapter 1, I'll go back up real quick. We found the best revelation. We found that Jesus was the best revelation. That of all the things that God revealed to us, Jesus was the best of them, though he spoke through the prophets, though he spoke in different ways in times past. The writer of Hebrews wanted us to know that Jesus was the best revelation. He was the ultimate revelation of the father to the world. We found that Jesus surpassed the angels in chapter one, that he was far above the angels. Now, in chapter two uh, verses uh, through chapter three, verse six, we're going to find out that Jesus is the best man. Not the best man at the wedding, but that Jesus is the best man. He's the best revelation, but he is also the best man. And we go, well, why do we need to know that? It's important to understand why the book of Hebrews was written. And I'm, I'm going to kind of go quick so we can get this all in. OK, take notes, get the tape. We're selling it for nine ninety nine today. All the profits. Just kidding. Um, you can get the You can get the CD. You can go on for free online and, and listen to these things. Um, but we, it's important to understand why the book of Hebrews was written. It was written to Christians, but Hebrew Christians. It was written to the Jewish Christians. And there is a warning here in the beginning of chapter 2. Let me read that so it will help us understand one of the reasons the writer is writing this. You know, do you know there's always a reason to write somebody? There's always a reason. And, and it's important to, to go and say, well, what is the reason? And then also say, okay, God, I understand the reason for that. How does that apply to me? And sometimes there'll be a direct application. Sometimes there'll be a side application of why it applies to us. Therefore, verse two or chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Wait a second. He's connecting Hearing and the revelation of the angels to to punishment for trespasses. And he's warning us. Wow. How shall we escape? 
What shall we escape? What? Uh, transgression and disobedience, the reward for those things. How will we escape the reward if we're disobedient and we transgress? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And he's talking, that's already a mouthful. He's talking about take heed to the things that Jesus taught. Take heed to the things that Jesus taught. It's important. Why is he, is he making the delineation here? Because these are Jewish Christians. This was written probably before 70 A.D. And so these were not that far into their Christendom, into their Christianity. They're leaning, and we're going to find this a little bit more. They're leaning, their bent is to go back to the, to the Mosaic law. Their leaning is to go back under bondage. They, they, they're okay with adding, you know, Christianity. They've received Christ, but they don't have a grasp yet on what that means. And their leaning is to go back to what they used to believe. And the dangers we find in there throughout the New Testament don't go back and be yoked again to the, to the law and become a slave to the law. Christ came to set us free. And so, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. It's really easy. Part of the application this morning that I want us all to be aware of is what are those things that it would be easy for us to go back into? What are the things that even recently in your Christian walk that God has set you free, maybe from being one who follows the law, maybe being one who who looks at Jesus a certain way and you've been redeemed and relieved of that into the more of a fullness of Christ. But it's still easy because we've walked that way for so long to go back. It's comfortable and we know it well. And the, the author here is really saying, give heed to the words of Jesus. Listen. Closely to the words. And then he says in verse four that God bore witness with signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Lord in verse three has said, um, how should we escape this great salvation spoken by the Lord? So, so Jesus Christ came in and brought salvation. But then we found all the miracles that we read in the book of Acts and throughout the, the epistles, the different times and miracles were happening were confirmations of what the Lord Jesus said. And here's an important doctrine right there. Jesus doesn't do miracles for miracles sake. The Holy Ghost doesn't show up just so we can have a Holy Ghost party and go woo 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 and go home and say, wasn't service great today? We have to be careful as a body of Christ to not fall into the trap of seeking the gifts for the gift's sake. There is always a reason that the Holy Spirit is poured out. And throughout history, throughout history, as there's been spirit uh, empowering times where there's been revivals happening, I believe many, most, maybe all were started in the right vein. God poured out his spirit. But then people at times took that and began to build themselves a name and began to build a church around God's miracles. When God's miracles, the Holy Ghost power is always about confirming who he is and bringing glory to him and not to man. And that's what he's talking about here. Church, we need to be very careful because see, God, I believe and desire. I desire and I believe he desires and he will begin to pour out his spirit more and more and more. And we will see the miracles that he promised. We have to be careful not to make it a Holy Ghost party. And go home and go, wasn't that great? But when the power of God begins to be manifest in our presence, that we open up the windows and let the world see what God is doing and then declare that he is God and he wants to do miracles in our own life. We're never going to make it. <laughs> Lord, woo! that wasn't even in my notes. <laughs> and so we have this warning. Pay attention. Give heed. That's what we're doing. And the writer saying to the give heed to what Jesus said. Hallelujah. Boy, when you get off on a trail like that to get back is a lot of fun. So we so again so we have this this problem here that that the Christians desire there it's not even necessarily a desire but it's a bent in them to just fall back into the law of Moses and so the first thing is the warning 
Give heed to the words of Jesus, who, what Jesus said. And now the rest, of, a big portion of the rest of chapter 2 and into the first part of chapter 3, the, the writer of Hebrews here is building a case that Jesus came as the best man. You go, well, why? You know, isn't Jesus the Son of God? Isn't he God himself? We already established that he was better than the angels. Now we're going to go backwards and declare that he's better than man. Doesn't the fact that he's better than angels automatically make him better than man? There's an important part to get here. The Jews look to Moses so much as the founder of their faith, the Mosaic law. And he is saying, and, and through the next couple chapters, we're going to get in there. He's saying, listen, Jesus is better than Moses. And that's important to them. If they can get that, that Jesus is better than Moses, why would I go back to Moses? Jesus is better. He's going he's to reveal to us in just a few minutes, if we make it that far, that Jesus is the better high priest. And we're going to hear that again even in a few weeks more in depth. And, and the, the point is, is that the high priest was man. The high priest was a man. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 5. We're going to just, like I said, we're going to go through a few things here. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angel. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. The finishing in verse 8. Now, all those three, three uh, the quotes are from um, Psalms chapter 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, listen to this, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. If Hebrews is just confusing at times. If you've read through the book of Hebrews and weren't confused at all, you fell asleep while you were reading. Or God came in and supernaturally gave you such insight. There is so much said in here. And we don't want to breathe too lightly. So this is a quote of, ch- of chapter 8. And, and one thing you find, that the more you study the, the Bible and, and get into Bible college classes, you find that there is different ways of, of understanding and interpreting what is being said. In, in the 6, 7, and 8, there's a little bit of controversy. Uh, some say that those scriptures out of Psalms were only speaking of the Messiah. Some say it wasn't reply, applying to the Messiah. I believe that, that but most agree that it's a, a messianic scripture, Psalm 8, and that it was speaking of Jesus. But I also believe it's speaking truly of simple man, of mankind. When he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hand. When God created man in the garden, he created us a little lower than the angels, but he put everything in subjection to him. He created us that we would have absolute dominion over everything in, in verse eight, it says for he put in uh, in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. That was God's intent for man from the beginning. But we fell immediately. Sin entered mankind and we now do not have that same dominion. When we go to the zoo, there are bars separating us from the wild animals now, they're in there, so we have enough dominion over them to get them there. But we don't have enough dominion over them to keep them there without the bars. We lost something in the fall of man. And that's where it says here in verse 8, it says, But now we do not yet see all things put under him. That's true. If everything is put under us, then why is the state of the world like it is? Because we lost the authority. We lost that. Praise God for verse 9. But we see Jesus who has made, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. 
And this is the beginning of 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 the even confusion. Wait a second. I, I just got a letter and a couple you know, that wasn't in chapters when they received it. But in chapter one, it said that God, that Jesus was above the angels. He was better than the angels. And here it says, but he was put to be a little lower than the angels. How is that? Because when Jesus came and was born, he took on the form of a human. He was born into poverty. He was born into a, into a body that was 100% man. And the, this is where we can get a little confused. Well, he was, was, he was always God, but he was able to take on the form of a man, which meant the moment he did that, he was capable of sinning. And being tempted, but he was without sin. He had to be capable of sinning. Otherwise, his sacrifice wouldn't have done any good. So he was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory. Jesus came, and the author is helping us to understand, Jesus came as a man, absolute as a man, and yet he was able to taste death so we didn't have to. This is such an important thing to us and the foundation for the Jews who are first believing. Because now he's, he's pointing, painting the picture, now the beginning, that Jesus, truly, don't forget, he came and he rose from the dead, but he didn't just come as God walking on earth so we could see him and go, oh, that's God. He came 100% as man so that he can fulfill two things in this chapter. That he is better than Moses, the man, and that he is the high priest. And we're going to get to that in a moment, I think. May I explico? Are we okay together? Am I explaining myself? If you fall behind, raise your hand. <laughs> we're just going to we're just going to keep going because we don't have time to stop. For it was fitting. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. If Jesus wasn't man, it really wouldn't have been suffering. When you, when you take God in God form... Even if you were allowed to him to self to be beaten, he doesn't feel it. He's God. But when you take God and put him 100% in the form of man, everything is just like we would experience it. Everything. He was man. It was fitting for him. For whom all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation Perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Huh? Verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Isaiah, here I am. Here am I and the children who God has given me. Just quickly, the parallel he's drawing here is, 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 is there's, there's a lot to it, but Jesus, by coming in the form of man, 100% man, is truly able to be our brother. Not our brother in because we have the same mother, but because he's part of mankind. He shares that commonness with us. It's so important that we understand Jesus was common. Every sin that's common to man, he was tempted by. And so he truly can call us brothers. And, and you know, guys really like to use this term a lot, certain guys especially, when they've gone through something together, there's a bond and they, you know, they begin to call them, call each other brothers, bands of brothers. And there was even that, that show about the, the war, I believe, called Band of Brothers. They weren't brothers, but they were brothers because they experienced something drastic, something heavy that unites people together. Jesus calls us brother in the same vein because he experienced experienced life 
and he experienced suffering and he experienced loss. He experienced all the things that man experiences in the form. And so he says, you're my brother. We are of one. He took upon our nature, though we won't fully take upon his nature because he's God. We don't teach the Mormon doctrine that someday we'll be totally perfected and God ourselves. But but someday we will be totally perfected in heaven and and, and we will no longer sin. And so he says, I'll declare your name to my brethren. He calls us brothers. And aren't you so glad, church, that he can call us brother, that we can call him brother. He knows our sufferings. He knows our grief. And we can go to him and not as someone who doesn't know. Even when you're talking to people on earth, you don't go to a rich person who's been rich their whole life and say, can you relate to me? I'm poor. Because you go, they don't relate. They don't relate. We tend to flock together with people who can relate to us when we want that camaraderie. Because, you know, can you understand my plight? Homeschool parents, we flock together because we're all going crazy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's something and because we need to, to understand one another. Jesus fully understands us and he wants us to understand him. Moving on. 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Another another thing pulled right out, and, and I've seen, I've heard this as a powerful message. Is just these two scriptures are so important to us. In another vein, it says, you know, we were children have been partaken of flesh and blood. He himself shared in the same. He became man so that through death he could disarm the devil. Now, he didn't annihilate the devil. The devil didn't die. The devil didn't stop being the devil when Jesus died, but he disarmed him. He took the power and specifically here in Hebrews, he says he took the power of death. You might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So many people are truly afraid of dying. It's a fear. It is. It's the second greatest fear in the world. You know, when they when they really go and poll people, death is the second greatest fear. The first one actually is public speaking. I, I kid you not. The first the first greatest fear of people is is public speaking. So technically, the average person in the world is more afraid of being the person giving the eulogy than the person in the box. But the fear of death grips us. It grips us and it doesn't even allow people to live fully. Before Christ, we had no hope of the resurrection. In Christ, he took that. He took the power of death, of the fear of death. He disarmed the devil and he allowed us to be free in bondage. Church, we're not free yet. Many of us are still afraid of death. We need to to begin to live fully understanding that the moment I die, I don't die. I just take another step. It's just part of eternity and begin to live with that understanding that there is no death, that it really, truly doesn't matter. God, help us to realize the freedom that you've given He destroyed the works of the devil, but like this and in so many other things, we don't walk in that. God, help us to really, really understand that there's nothing to fear in death for the Christian. And that's something that we can begin to live abandoned for God and not be concerned about that which the world is. I have so much compassion on Japan because it's a largely atheistic nation. What What is their hope in? You know, their hope has been in, in some ways in their technology. It's, it's even specifically, it's the most 
earthquake proof place in the world. They spent so much time and they're very technologically advanced building and designing things to withstand great earthquakes. And then this comes and there's not much that can withstand the power of God that he set upon this world. I'm not saying he went out to destroy to destroy Japan, but the earthquakes are just a tiny bit of the power of God revealed on earth. And they're not prepared. And they also don't have hope. And we need to be praying that hope will be preached. Hope needs to be preached. Just after World War II, we, did, we as America, we avoided a call. We didn't answer like we should have. They actually called for missionaries to go to Japan and spread the gospel. And, and very few heard that call. And shortly after that, the doors closed again and we were not able to get in there with the gospel. And, and, and whoa, shame on us as a nation. We didn't go. We didn't heed that call. It's a largely atheistic nation. God, let them know you so that they can have hope. Hope that even if, as Job said, even though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes I will see God. Church, we live that every day. We are not as those who have no hope, but we have the hope that Jesus Christ was the best man and He came because He was a man. He was able to die once so that we didn't have to. He couldn't die for us if He was fully God and not man. He had to become fully man and yet without sin so that He could taste death so we didn't have to. And the writer here is helping us again to understand that. Thank, thanks be to God that He took the power of the devil in that. In verse 16, we're moving along. For in verse 16, it says, For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Big word. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Hebrews 4.15, skipping ahead, but Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's what he's saying here. He was tempted, yet without sin. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, the high priest represents man to God. The high priest is a man who stands in the place of men representing them to God. In the, in the past, they would take the sacrifices to the high priest that he would make atonement through the sacrifices so that God wouldn't judge them. Jesus came as a high priest, as a man, being able to represent man to God. He had to be man. He couldn't just be God. He stepped in that place. And, and we, we heard Pastor Jeff a few, few weeks ago speak so well on it, but he became our Melchizedek. And this, you know, when you study the book of Hebrews, you really, it's great to go back and study the book of Leviticus and understand what all this priesty stuff is. But the priests were, the, high, the priests were supposed to be born through the, through the, the lineage of Aaron. The high priest was Aaron. All the priests had to be through the born of Levi. But the high priest had to come through Aaron's lineage exactly. Jesus wasn't a Levite. He didn't come through Aaron. So he superseded, he surpassed all of those high priests. And he came in from the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of praise. And there's a whole wonderful understanding of God being Judah from the tribe of Judah. But he became to surpass all the high priests, but he qualified to be our high priest. He came in the form of man. He himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. He's going to move on. Do we do understand propitiation? We've heard it a few times. I'm going to read. I'll just do this real quick. I'm going to read um, out of uh, the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. Spirit-Filled Life. Actually, it might not be in the Spirit-Filled Life Bible, but it's through the same series. 
to satisfy the wrath of God, which has been justly, justly and necessarily provoked by sin. It's important to understand that the wrath of God poured out on man is not undeserved. It's deserved. It's a complicated concept that implies, on one hand, that God's righteous wrath was directed against Jesus as the substitute for sinful people. And on the other hand, propitiation requires the justification of those whose sins have been forgiven. Forgiven sinners must be given the righteousness of Jesus so that they can stand in the presence of God in his holiness. Propitiation does not change God's standard. It changes people to meet his standards. That's deep right there. Because of God's righteousness, he chose and and couldn't to just say, you're forgiven. That would really, doing what this said, that would just change his standards to meet our lack. The standard was righteousness. And he couldn't just say, oh, it's okay. You're forgiven. That would have changed his standard. Instead, we had to be raised up to meet his standard and can never do it. So Jesus came as man to walk a holy life without sin so that through his death, all of the law, all of the sin could be placed upon him, our sin, and he could become made the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that G, that God would able to be say your punishment, which is due you your punishment, which you deserve has been paid by Jesus. My standard stays the same. You didn't meet it, but Jesus paid the price for you. I get chills when I think about it, when I get the revelation. Therefore, I love therefores. And you've heard it. I'm going to say it again for those who fell asleep last time. Whenever you see a therefore, you need to read before it to find out what it's there for. Okay? Therefore, all these things happened, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. I'm going to read to the end and then go back. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. That's a mouthful. Let's go back to the beginning. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here's another term given to Jesus. And if and he is called the apostle, the great apostle. Well, apostle means one who is sent by God. So we're summing up chapter two here in a quick way of saying Jesus is the apostle, the great apostle. He is the one who is sent by God, but he's also the high priest who is the one sent from man to God. He embodies both sides for us. Praise God. He comes to represent to us God. That's what an apostle does. 
He's, he's sent out to represent God to man. And we found it, and we had a great discussion in our life group about Jesus being, you know, the full representation, the absolute representation of God. And it just blows us away. And within the group, we had some great conversations of, you know, wow, we've understood God is this way and Jesus is this way. And, and we were so limited in our view and understanding of God that it's so important to look at the entire picture of who Jesus is. And, and that gives us the exact representation of the Father. And so he comes to represent God to us so that we can understand him better. I'm going to put this in as a, one of the many side notes today, because there's a lot of them. That it's important to remember that Jesus is in the Old Testament. Okay? We need to understand that Jesus didn't come on the scene at his birth. And that we just get to look at, at one side of Jesus. Jesus was with the Father in the beginning and through him, all things were created that are created in heaven and on earth. That means that Jesus was part of the wrath of God that we see in the Old Testament that we quickly want to pass up and say, I need some more grace. <laughs> Jesus, God, is everything. And we'll never fully understand that in group. We tried to, we came up with some, we tried. You know, we tried to go, man, this is God and Jesus and it's all one. And it's really hard, but he's it all. He's everything. So he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He puts both of them in. You know, Moses was never called strictly the apostle, but he was referred to as the apostle because many times he said, God said, I am sending you. And Moses himself said, I am sent from God. An apostle means that who, he who is sent from God. Moses was the apostle. And now Jesus, for the Jews and for us, has become the great apostle. He's better than Moses. He's the great high priest. He trumps all the Aaronic high priests. He, he trumps the Levitical priests. He is the great high priest because he was able to do it without sin. When they would come to the high priest every year and make their sacrifices, the high priest is sitting there and he himself had to go and wash his clothes and cleanse and do all these things because he was unholy. But Jesus isn't. He can fully relinquish us of our sins. He made the sacrifice. He was faithful. Who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in his all's house. The, the writer is so, so important. He's not trying to destroy their belief in Moses or their, their adherence. He says, Moses was faithful. Don't get me wrong. Moses was great. I'm not saying you can't have Moses to look to and, and his example, but Jesus is better. When I was in Guatemala, often we would, we would run, to, you know, we ran into Catholics all the time because it's 80% Catholic, but get these conversations with the Catholics. And one of the things that Protestants try to do is try to take Mary away. You know, as, as, as Christians, most of us are afraid of Mary. We, I mean, we just, we don't even like to talk about Mary. When's the last time you heard, besides Christmas, when's the last time you heard a good message about Mary? We don't want to talk about her. Just leave her alone. Mary was a great disciple of Jesus and had faith like crazy. Who of you would walk around as, a, as someone who's supposed to be upright and saying, I'm pregnant and I'm married? Yeah. <laughs> be hiding it. But she was faithful to God. So you don't destroy Mary and win any favor with Catholics. But you can say, oh, Mary, blessed Mary. What a great example. Disciple of the Lord Jesus. Oh, Mary was wonderful. But Jesus said you can go directly to the Father. That's right. Mary is great, but Jesus is better. Yep. We don't need to go through Mary. We can go through Jesus. And that's what... The writer here is doing Moses was faithful in all his house, but Jesus built the house. Moses was the founder of the house of Israel, but Jesus built the house.
the household of faith. How much greater is, is the architect? I love to, to look around at houses and things. And, and, and again, in Antigua, they're just the architecture there was just so great. And, you know, but if you really look at things, when you first look at things, you go, oh, that's so beautiful. But when you stand there for a few minutes, you go, somebody made that. And there's an awe. I don't know if you're like me, but when I look at things, if I found out it was made by man and not by a machine, I go, wow. And there's some things that the machine version, it, it just, it looks better. You know, it just, it kind of, it looks better. But I still look at what man made and say, but man made this. There's glory in the one who makes things. And Jesus is the author, the founder, the pioneer, the creator. Better than Moses. A moment ago we read, um, I believe it was here, that, that he was the captain. You know, that, that, that word is, is so much more meaning and it does mean so much more. It really means author, captain, pioneer. He's it all. He's everything. And here in verse 4 it says, Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Aren't we talking about Jesus? Aren't we talking about Jesus? Go back over with me mm, to verse 10. And this is also where we saw Captain. For it was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Did the writer contradict himself? No. Hebrews seems to be a book of contradictions. But you put it together because in the beginning it says Jesus is above the angels. But then he says he's a little lower than the angels. Here it says that Jesus created all things. And then in the, at the end, at the beginning of chapter three, it says God built all things. And yet they're comparing Jesus to the builder. And so we've turning the next corner. Oh, Hebrew people, children. Jesus came and he was better than the angels. Listen to him. Oh, people, Jesus came as a man, but the best man. Listen to him. Oh, people, Jesus is God. Listen to him. Just change the corner again and connected them all. He's relates with us, but he is God. He was perfect. Yet died. So we didn't have to. The Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The hope is in Jesus. The hope is in Jesus and we have to hold firm to it. And I believe that we can only hold firm because of the grace of God, but we can also only hold firm if we know God. And he's revealed himself through his word to us. We have to be one who understand why Jesus works as our sacrifice. We have to understand that Jesus was fully man and he can fully relate with every temptation. So that we can go to him easily and know that we are forgiven. We have to have a good understanding of the word so that our hope doesn't get stripped away. We have to have a good understanding of the word of God so that our doctrine is secure and in the, placed in the right things. Because if we're trusting in the wrong things and then it crashes down on us, what will we stand on? Our word is God. If you've been taught to believe a doctrine that everything is good, it's all good and, and, and nothing bad will ever happen to you by faith. And something bad happens to you. Where does your faith go? It gets destroyed. But the way I read the Bible is, yes, we are more than conquerors, but we're going to go through trials and temptations. We need to have a good understanding of this word to make to make it through so that we can be firm to the end. Let us not be led astray. Let us give heed, more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away.
A lot of talk of it. If these are the end times, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Let's be strong so we don't drift away. This morning, as we've gone through this quick study, what is it that maybe you would run back to out of habit? Might be a sin. It might be a bad doctrine and say, no more. I'm putting my faith in Christ and in his word and his grace and his mercy and his sacrifice for me. I'm not going to run back to my boyfriend, to my girlfriend, to my drugs, to my alcohol, to my working a lot, to my hobbies. I'm going to stand firm and look to him. I'm going to give his word. I'm going to heed his word more and more in my life. Let's pray. God, as we close in prayer. We, as the writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God, this morning we consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. We consider you. We give heed to your words this morning. God, we thank you that it's by your grace that we stand. We fix our eyes upon you and nothing else. Help us to know you more deeply. Help us to know you more richly. God, I thank you that you are perfect and your word is a perfect revelation of you and Jesus is a perfect revelation of the Father to us. Strengthen us this week. Walk with us. Walk before us. Be our guide and our guard. Draw us near to you. God, draw us together in our life groups that we might pray for one another and encourage one another, not with just platitudes, God, but encourage one another with the word of God. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name. I know most of you are probably in a life group, but if you're not on the on the wall in the hallway, it's it's almost totally fixed. But there's there's cards and pictures of the life group leaders, but cards of each of the definitions of the of each group and their meeting time and places. If you're not in a life group, I encourage you to find a group to become part of. And it's okay to shop around at the beginning. Go to a few, find out where you belong, and make sure you get plugged in so that we can walk this life together. Life happens. In the midweek, we just come here for a filling station. Amen? Amen. Be blessed. Yes. All the people wearing these are leaders of life groups. Amen.